0: From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. While Abraham Lincoln's leadership is often credited with winning the Civil War and ending slavery, historian Fergus Bordowick's research highlights the often overlooked role of Congress in those struggles. Among the challenges legislators faced were a divided nation, dwindling power, and Lincoln himself, who Bordowick portrays as a largely confused and somewhat feeble figure. Yet the Republican reformists, as Bordowick calls them, deserve more credit for saving the union. Coming up on Forum, I'll talk with him about his new book, Congress at War. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. While Abraham Lincoln tends to get most of the credit for winning the Civil War, historian Fergus Bordowick reminds us not to forget about the role Congress played in the Union's victory. In his new book, Congress at War, Borderwick follows four influential members of Congress as they navigate one of the most dynamic and consequential times in American history. Borderwick joins Forum to discuss the challenge of governing a divided nation and how the thirty-sixth U.S. Congress helped hold the Union together, and welcome Fergus Borderwick. Good to have you back with us on Forum.
1: Thank you. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, glad to have you, and uh, really fascinated by your book, I must say, as I'm sure our listeners will be, because we're getting what uh, often is described, and I don't mean this in any pejorative connotation, as a a revisionist history. Actually, I call it a heterodoxical history, because uh, so much of history in terms of the Civil War and the emancipation of slaves is seen from the vantage point of Lincoln and, and is Lincoln centric, but really what you do here is you make a case for these four radical Republican congressional representatives really driving Lincoln and having more to do with the changes that occurred, not only in the war, but as far as slavery, far more than Abraham Lincoln.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, an, another way to put it perhaps would be to say that I, I've delivered the history, the po- political history of the Civil War um, the way Americans of the period and of uh, the nineteenth century would readily have understood it, because in the ni- in the nineteenth century, the presidency was not automatically regarded as the great power center of the federal government. Uh, it, prior to Lincoln, with the exception of Andrew Jackson, Americans saw Congress as the driving engine of American democracy, not not the presidency. Lincoln was a forceful president, but uh, uh, because of the way our thinking about the presidency has evolved in the 20th century. Uh, we tend to look to the president's, uh, president for always setting the agenda, being uh, the the, uh, the the key crafter of legislation and so on, uh, which was not at all the case in the 19th century. Congress had a profound, continuous, and highly creative effect on uh, the way the war was waged and all kinds of legislation associated with the war.
0: Yeah. And I want to talk about that legislation as well, but let's talk about these four lawmakers that you focus on in your book. And, uh, one name is certainly familiar, I'm sure to many of the listeners of Thaddeus Stevens, who was, a congressman, and who uh, was portrayed in Spielberg's version, Steven Spielberg's version of the film Lincoln, uh, in a very important way and formidable way, as he is in your book. He wanted, first of all, immediate freedom of slaves. He also argued that slaves should be fighting against their so-called masters. And uh, that was in spite of Nat Turner and the rebellion of Nat Turner, which uh, many took very seriously at that time. I just want to talk about him individually, if we could, because... Uh, he saw things very differently than Lincoln. Lincoln, at one point, as you point out in your book, said, uh, I wouldn't free a single slave if it meant preserving the union.
1: Yeah, well, Thaddeus Stevens uh, and other like-minded radicals uh, were way ahead of Lincoln in terms of, let's say, a radical policy towards completely ending slavery and driving towards racial equality, legal equality, and and eventually even social equality, which was anathema to even most northern whites at the time. Uh, Stevens, of the men in my book, probably is the man who would be most comfortable in our own era, which is to say the America that he was talking about in the 1860s was the country, by and large, that we live in today. Uh, even though we fall short, obviously, of of the uh, ideals that we all hold uh, with respect not just to race, but to uh, full full democracy in every respect. But nonetheless, the ideal that we all share today are ones that were radical in the 1860s, and Stevens was at the cutting edge of that. It should be said also that he was not only an idealist, uh, which he was, and a visionary, which he was. But he was a brilliant uh, practical politician, brilliant, uh, and recognized as that. Um, he uh, was a great deal maker. He uh, knew when he had to compromise. He got the most that he could. But f- but he was willing to get a great deal uh, if he could not get everything. And much of the really far-sighted legislation that leads up to emancipation, and certainly the recruitment of Black troops and the uh, what becomes eventually the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments uh, is attributable in significantly to Stevens's groundwork, although he didn't live to see all those amendments come to fruition.
0: And since you mentioned, Fergus, uh, Black troops, uh, I want to bring in Senator Benjamin Wade here of Ohio, who uh, we can talk about in some detail in terms of uh, the focus of the Civil War and emancipation, but he was really um, involved in something that a lot of people don't know about, I think, uh, the, the Tennessee Massacre. Can you talk about that and his role in that?
1: Yeah, you're, you're speaking uh, about the Fort Pillow Massacre of in the spring of 1864. Ben Wade, in short, was another radical abolitionist, um, a uh, two-fisted radical at that, literally. So he'd, uh, uh, he'd, he would bring a weapon with him uh, to the floor of the Senate to deter um, personal attacks. That was in the years before the Civil War when, when uh, Southerners were, were prone to physically attack their northern enemies in Congress. Uh, Wade became the chairman of something, it's a bit of a mouthful the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, uh, which I'm just going to refer to as the Joint Committee, uh, which was unique at the time. It was by far the most powerful uh, subcommittee that had ever existed. Well, it's a full committee, not a subcommittee that had ever existed up to that time. And it took on the responsibility of monitoring the entire war effort, uh, monitoring how battles were fought, taking, postmortems of lost battles, uh, interviewing, and you might even say sometimes interrogating uh, generals and so on. In 1864, uh, a fast-moving column of Confederate cavalry under uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who would later become the first um, leader of the Ku Klux Klan, he was a former slave owner, a pre-Civil War slave owner, A brilliant cavalry officer led an expedition of several thousand men north into Kentucky, then back into Tennessee. They uh, surrounded and attacked a fort occupied mainly by black federal troops on the Mississippi River, a little bit north of Memphis. And uh, they forced it to surrender and massacred most of the black troops and a, a number of their white officers as well. They butchered them, they butchered them. It was a monstrous event, uh, by far the most, the worst um, war crime committed on American soil apart from the Indian Wars. Uh, And that event would likely have been virtually forgotten or it would have faded into the, well, maybe we don't really know what happened uh, memory hole, uh, except that within two weeks after that massacre, Ben Wade, and another member of the Joint Committee personally traveled uh, to Tennessee. And they took testimony from the few survivors there were, uh, other civilian eyewitnesses, and so on. And their record has been published, as of all the records of the Joint Committee. Uh, You can read it online for free. Uh, And it still stands your hair on end, the kind of torture and vicious uh, uh, butchery that took place there, men, uh, by the the score, uh, murdered uh, under a white flag. Uh, One individual, a white officer, as it happens, was crucified, and there's more, I I, I think. It's a horror show,
0: basically, yeah. It's It's a a, horror
1: show, and thanks to Ben Wade, we know about it.
0: Well, also thanks to Ben Wade, uh, General uh, George McClellan was fired by Lincoln. I mean, he had pretty much more to do with that than uh, Lincoln did, didn't he?
1: Well, uh, McClellan, who led the Army of the Potomac, the main Union Army uh, for the first um, segment of the war, late 1861 through most of 1862, was regarded as a brilliant soldier, but basically brilliant on paper. Uh, He was a great organizer. He was a bit of a preening peacock. Um, He looked the part of a general Uh, He liked being referred to as the young Napoleon, but he was afraid to fight battles, which is sort of a deficit in a war, you know. (laughs) Uh, He was was afraid to fight battles. He uh, uh, never won a significant one, um, though he claimed to have won several. Uh, And he was a drag on the war effort. Uh, Lincoln, who lacked self-confidence on military issues at the beginning of the war, deeply lacked, he had no military experience of any consequence, and trusted McClellan. He put all his eggs in that basket uh, and held on to him long beyond the point it was evident to many that McClellan was a loser. Uh, the joint committee under uh, Wade's leadership hammered and hammered and hammered at Lincoln. This is one of the respects in which they de- defied Lincoln repeatedly in demanding uh, that he get rid of McClellan, who was not not only was he a a loser as a general, he was a deep-dyed racist. Uh, I mean, who was was perfectly happy to leave slavery in existence. But he was from Philadelphia. He uh, had nothing but contempt for uh, black people and made that clear on the record. Uh, and uh, uh, at least entertained, but only entertained, no more than that, the idea of accepting uh, a dictatorship if he were, uh, if the army uh, uh, pushed him into it. Uh, uh, and despite all that, Lincoln, Lincoln kept him. Uh, but he was, uh, the, the, the investigations of the joint committee, uh, especially at the beginning, focused largely on McClellan and his mismanagement of various uh, uh, battles and the lead up to battle, which is lies and prevarications of which there were many, 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 no matter how many, no matter how many soldiers he had, he always claimed that the Confederates had twice as many, when in point of fact, they sometimes had about a third as many. Uh, So again, that was, uh, it still took Lincoln much too long to get rid of him, but uh, without pressure from Wade and his allies, it might have, he might have stayed there much longer.
0: If you just joined us, we're talking to historian and author Curtis Bordewick uh, about his new book, Congress at War, how Republican reformers fought the Civil War, defied Lincoln, ended slavery, and remade America. And I'm focusing on that remade America because these four radical Republicans actually not only built a strong uh, central government, and there's a lot of battle, as you point out in your book, between small government uh, as advocated by Jefferson and bigger government as advocated by Hamilton, but... The legislation that they were behind, I'll get back to the Civil War, but the legislation that they essentially were the architects of, you have the Homestead Act, the Pacific Railway Act, I think I've got all these, the creation of the Department of Agriculture, and the Land Grant College Act. I mean, you think about Congress today and what they're incapable of doing, um, but these four radicals mainly were behind, and one of them uh, from Ohio was actually pro-slavery and opposed the war, sort of called Copperhead. Uh, It's just astonishing uh, to realize, again, what you started out talking about was the power behind the Congress at this time.
1: Yeah, Congress was tremendously powerful. Now, one reason uh, it was able to accomplish so much uh, during the war, including those extremely important non-military acts that you you just cited, Uh, plus, by the way, running the war, finding the money, to, to wage the war, not a sexy subject, but incredibly important. Without money, the war couldn't have been fought. But- Excuse
0: uh, me, Fergus, in fact, if it was for the way that they uh, got money, we wouldn't have had the kind of uh, tax system that we presently have. Isn't that right?
1: Yeah, the, the first income tax was uh, passed during the Civil War. And uh, I was amused uh, often by seeing headlines in newspapers of the period, editorial saying, we need taxes. <laughs> taxes are patriotic uh, uh, without taxes we can't win the war without uh, uh, there was tremendous support public support for paying taxes direct taxes income taxes uh, I mean nobody likes paying taxes in his heart but uh, but people felt it was it was necessary and they recognized that 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 taxation was imperative if government was going to do its work um, uh, I, th- I think you were you were you were leading me towards uh, Clement Vallandigham a few minutes ago, the uh, Copperhead, I think.
0: Well, I was uh, going to talk about him as well as uh, we got to talk about all four of them to some degree. Uh, uh, William Pitt uh, Fessenden of Maine was the other one. He was the one who actually got money for the war uh, along with Stevens, didn't he?
1: Exactly, um, William Pitt Fessenden, who who was one of the great titans uh, of the U.S. Senate, though his name isn't widely remembered anymore. He was he was a um, bit of a stiff-necked Yankee from Maine, uh, a brilliant floor leader, uh, 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 Service during the war as, as a senator practically killed him uh, from exhaustion and so on. The man worked around the clock, he never slept. Um, and uh, Fessenden worked in tandem with Thaddeus Stevens. Stevens was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. So between them, those two committees were the ones that had to agree on how money was to be found for the war. And to take a very complex subject and boil it down to, in, to a few essentials, one, uh, the government was in deficit in 1861. The, the treasury was empty, not, not to mention the fact that it had no, no army. There were only 16,000 soldiers in the federal army in 1860, be, before the war, on the brink of the war, and nearly all of them were on Indian fighting posts in the West. By the end of the war, uh, the North will have to raise 2 million men, from 16,000 to 2 million. Those, those troops have to be found, paid, uh, uh, given uniforms, the cavalry needs horses, cannon have to be made, rifles have to be bought, ships for the Navy have to be acquired, and uh, molted, every, and everybody needs to be fed. Uh, uh, prodigious amounts of money had to be raised. Initially, uh, the the government uh, hit on the idea of uh, selling bonds, war bonds. It had been done before, but on nothing like the scale for which it was done during the Civil War. And uh, Americans, uh, in in vast numbers, bought war bonds. Uh, Later on, yes, uh, that, that, that proved not to be enough. The war didn't last three or four months as people thought it was going to last four years. So yes, uh, the government had to resort to taxation of various types. But the income tax is the uh, uh, maybe the most significant, at least symbolically, because it, it really extends the authority of the central government. And much of this wartime legislation uh, foreshadows. It lays the early, early groundwork for the strong central government that we have today.
0: And again, we're talking with Fergus Bordewick, uh about his new book, Congress at War, how Republican reformers fought the Civil War, defied Lincoln, ended slavery, and remade America. And as he just mentioned, also built a strong central government and got income taxes. We're covering uh, the whole picture here for you. And uh, to cover that picture uh, really, particularly in light of the historical moment that we're in today, I think, it's important uh, to sort of get your take about uh, Lincoln and his attitude, which you've alluded to to some extent, uh, where blacks were concerned. uh, Because until 1862, he believed in voluntary colonization. Uh, He wanted to go ahead with the um, emancipation because, uh, well, the emancipation was something he was uh, very mixed on. And again, these four radicals had a lot to do with driving him. But Uh, He didn't necessarily, I remember the, correct me if I'm wrong on this, the fourth debate with Stephen Douglas, he was actually opposed to blacks voting or um, serving on juries or actually uh, in any way even holding office uh, or intermarrying. He evolved. I mean, there there was a major evolution for for Abraham Lincoln during the four years of the war in terms of his attitude toward emancipation.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh... Yeah, the key word there is evolved. He did evolve, and and Lincoln. Uh, nothing I, I say here is intended to detract from Lincoln. I I, I believe, as most historians do, that he uh, was the the greatest president we've had, and uh, his mor his his moral depth, his ability to change to evolve, uh, and his ultimately his pragmatism, uh, coupled to a a a fundamentally liberal vision of America, uh, all, all are of a almost not unique stature, but close to unique, I think. Uh, Lincoln was a product of his own time. He was never an abolitionist as such, ever. Um, if you read his, his uh, speeches during the Lincoln-Douglas debates a few years before the war, uh, particularly in one debate, he, he articulates views that are so racist that will make you cringe. Now, what he was doing was um, <laughs> out, out demagoguing Stephen Douglas, who was just an utterly unabashed racist. Lincoln uh, outflanked him. Uh, on the other hand, Lincoln, to, Lincoln Lincoln really did hate slavery. Many Northerners hated slavery without uh, feeling that, uh, uh, emancip- universal emancipation was a good idea. They were perfectly content, as Lincoln was at the beginning of the war, to allow slavery to continue to exist in the South if, uh, uh, if it would keep the Union together. Uh, it became clear, particularly by, by 1862, that the war was going to kill slavery. To win the war, the Union had to destroy slavery. Why was that clear? A couple of things going on. Uh, one um, enslaved people are 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 leaving plantations, farms, their places of work in huge numbers. Wherever the Union armies march, slaves leave and they and they they flee to Union lines. and They begin working for the Union Army, and wherever those armies march, the army's best friends are the enslaved people, uh, uh, and. So slavery is already kind of disintegrating wherever the armies are. Uh, Second, the Union's running out of men. The federal armies are running out of men. Initially, the armies were all volunteer. Uh, A draft was instituted, the first draft in American history, by the way. Uh, During the war, it was necessary. But uh, many Northerners weren't very happy about the war. Copperheads, you would say, Democrats, typically. resisted the draft. There's tremendous draft resistance in the North. Fergus, hold
0: that thought. We're coming up on a break. You can hear the music coming up. And I want to give out the number because I know listeners who have questions for you. And we're talking about really the four Republican radicals who helped steer the Civil War and, and from the North and certainly helped with the emancipation. The 13th Amendment, the main force behind it was Congress again. And Talking about the role of Congress, then, you can join us with any questions or comments you have about Congress during the Civil War. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. Number again for your calls, toll free, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email. Any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. But please feel free to join us. I'm Michael Krasny. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about how Congress helped win the Civil War with Curtis Borderwick, historian and author of Congress at War: How Republican Reformers Fought the Civil War, Defied Lincoln, Ended Slavery, and Remade America. And if you'd like to add to this conversation, or if you have something you'd like to ask, we do involve. Uh, excuse me, we do welcome your involvement, and in fact, invite you to be part of the program. If you have questions or comments, you can join us now, toll free. The number to call 866-733-6786 again that's toll free 866-733-6786 if you have something to add or to ask or to bring into the conversation we do indeed want to hear from you you can also get in touch on twitter and facebook we're at kqed forum or email us our email address is forum at org. before i went to that break fergus you were talking about a second point, and i'd like you to finish what you had to say please
1: yeah we were talking uh, of course about um Lincoln, first Lincoln's evolution uh, with respect to race and to black Americans, and how that factored into the, how the war effort tended to determine that. So the North was running out of volunteers. Uh, a draft was instituted. There was a great draft only for white men, by the way, and frequently even Northerners would say, Northerners, this is a white man's war. It was racism even in the way that Northerners tended to think about it, and there was a widespread racist attitude that uh, blacks wouldn't fight, couldn't fight um, and so on. Um, uh, But there was a a shortage of men. So there was great pressure to find new sources and the greatest available source was black American men, countless numbers of whom wanted to fight, had tried to volunteer, weren't accepted, finally, uh, By 1863, they were in numbers. They would eventually number about 170,000 in the course of the war and were absolutely significant in winning the war. Um, uh, Lincoln was not in front on that. Congress was in front on it, especially the radicals. Uh, When I say radicals, this is the radical edge of the Republican party, which had both conservatives, moderates, and and radicals, so the radicals became more and more powerful over time uh, because they, from the beginning, had been committed to what was called a hard war. It was going to be war- long, bloody, and costly, and and it had to be carried through to the finish. And the country finally came along behind them, as did Lincoln. Lincoln. When Lincoln sensed that there was a a consensus in the North that would support the recruitment of blacks, he went along with it. Same with emancipation. There was no consensus at the beginning of the war. By 1863, there was. Um, and as, as I think we should all know, black troops once, once uh, engaged fought heroically, and indeed ferociously, uh, they knew what they had to fight for. Uh, they were fighting against slavery, fighting to liberate their own families. Uh, and so on, and in a number of battles. Mo- the most famous Battle of Fort Wagner, Charleston, 1863, was shown very vividly, Hollywood version, but but very vividly in the film Glory some while ago. Great movie.
0: It was a great movie indeed, and um, I, I don't want uh, to give the impression, or I'm looking at some of the comments that are coming in, that, uh, that either of us, because uh, I know where you stand and where I stand, uh, are trying to Uh, disparage uh, President Lincoln. Like you, I'm a great admirer of his on so many points, but I often think that the history has to be seen in a multidimensional way. I'm responding to a comment from a listener named Nicole who says, it's very disturbing when people indulge in taking Lincoln's quote, choosing to save the Union over freeing the slaves. Lincoln had written the Emancipation Proclamation already and was waiting for a strategic moment to deliver it. Lincoln was not an abolitionist, but he hated slavery. Lincoln's great ability to grow and change is what made him the essential man of that moment if only he was around for reconstruction without malice and with charity for all he would have helped bind up the wounds of this nation and please don't so readily disparage lincoln and nicole i don't believe we're trying to disparage lincoln and i agree with you that what andrew jackson did uh, who was a stone cold racist in so many ways and was impeached uh, uh, certainly speaks for itself let me bring a caller on board here peter joins us peter you're on morning
1: for this really uh, interesting perspective.
0: I'm wondering what the
1: author would please uh, comment about the the lessons for the role of Congress today. Uh, what could we learn? Uh, what inspiration could we draw? What warnings could we take uh, for today?
0: It's an important question, Peter, and I uh, always reluctant to ask a historian to tie things to the president because uh, they're always looking at the past, but there's there's certainly a line here. It's not a straight line from the Civil War Congress to the New Deal and to the Great Society. Uh, I don't know maybe you could uh, talk about that trajectory a bit, Fergus.
1: Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a it's always tough to to um, as you said draw a line or 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 draw a lesson a uh, direct lesson uh, from something that happened say 150 more years ago in the past for the present. Okay. Here 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 are some basic facts though. Uh, The most effective Congresses in American history, there are about four of them, uh, were ones where one party had a a huge advantage, a huge majority. Those four are the first Congress of 1789 to 91, uh, the Civil War Congresses when the Republicans had a huge majority. Um, After that, the uh, Roosevelt's New Deal Congresses and then Lincoln-Johnson. Lyndon Johnson's uh, Great Society Congress. So if you have um, a huge majority, you can get a lot more done. Uh, The Democrats during the Civil War, bear in mind that the half of the Democratic Party had had left the Union. Southerners had all left with the exception of Andrew Johnson. Uh, And the Northern Democrats were divided between war Democrats who voted with the Republicans and peace Democrats who were who opposed the war at every step, but were a, they were vocal, they were angry, uh, uh, but they were a pretty small minority. So we're in the present day, we have a divided Congress uh, and a divided Congress will, it will always be far more difficult for a divided Congress to act decisively, especially in an era like today, when there is there are deep, deep philosophical uh, uh, divisions between the two parties. And I I think it's naive on the part of many Americans, I'm not speaking to our caller here, Uh, on part of many Americans who think, why can't they just get together? Well, they disagree about pretty serious things, two very different visions of of how uh, the country should be organized, how it should be run, uh, uh, how strong the federal government should be, or how weak it should be, in the view of one party, uh, and so on. So, now if I look back to the Civil War Congresses, um, I mean, one thing that that uh, uh, I I admire, let's say, and I think we might we might think about at least is the. Uh, the, the, the clarity with which members of Congress in those days uh, did their work. Uh, there was no great federal bureaucracy. There, there, there was no congressional bureaucracy. Members of Congress had no offices. They had no secretaries. They did everything by themselves, uh, which is rather astonishing, frankly. Uh, they made it absolutely clear where they stood on things nobody fudged, nobody spun the facts or, or uh, and there are no mass media to speak of, although newspapers function that way to a degree. And uh, there was a bedrock, a bedrock belief that compromise was absolutely essential uh, to achieve anything. Let's look at th- briefly at Thaddeus Stevens, whom we talked about at the beginning of the show.
0: Before you go there, Fergus, yes. I just want to interrupt for a moment because you're talking about the bedrock and the clarity, and yet you give a picture of a very noisy, chaotic, and uh, contentious Congress.
1: Absolutely, that that was also that was also true. Uh, uh, but uh, members knew. I mean, there were ideologues, of course, and there were mediocre people uh, who 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 didn't function all that well. That's always true. It's always true in any Congress, but. Uh, Let's take Thaddeus Stevens, who was as fierce an abolitionist, hardcore, uh, uh, the most radical man in Congress, probably. Uh, and yet, at the same time, uh, I mean, he he desperately and he reiterated over and over and over that he wanted the vote for Black Americans, for freed the freed slaves, uh, and he fought for it. He gave brilliant speeches arguing on behalf of it. Uh, he was a he was a terrific parliamentary infighter, and yet in the end, he said, and he said this publicly: "I haven't been able to get everything that we should have. I am embarrassed for my country that we cannot get that in this legislation. Uh, uh, but it is the best we can get now, and I and I will I will sign it. Uh, or I will support it rather. Um, and." In the present day, I, I do think we have too many members of Congress, though I think there's a big difference between the two parties on the subject, uh, who, who are beyond rational compromise, uh, who are dri- so driven by the ideology, um, which one might consider wrong wrongheaded, uh, that they are beyond real recognizing that, that getting part of what you'd like is more important than, 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 than refusing to get anything.
0: When I studied uh, civics as a, as, a, as a young boy, the argument always was, this is how government works. It works by compromise. Um, but I think your distinction between what was and what is and the lack of compromise now is, is quite on point. Uh, I'm also prompted to read a comment, actually a tweet, a tweet from Pete, who says, please put an asterisk next to the 1860 Republicans. They were today's Democrats back then and vice versa. That's from Pete. And a question from a listener named Marte, actually uh, who writes she was disappointed in the Spielberg movie, Lincoln, because it didn't, did not have a scene where uh, Douglas, I assume she means Frederick Douglass, changes Lincoln's attitude toward African-Americans. Could you talk about that? Because Frederick Douglass did play a role in all this. And uh, to some extent there was disagreement between Douglas and Lincoln until, well, things move forward.
1: Yeah, well, I, th- I think uh, the idea that Douglas personally changed Lincoln's attitude can be overstated. Lincoln, as you said earlier, and I agree, was evolving. He was, he was evolving steadily. Uh, and he first intellectually accepted, then personally accepted and accommodated himself and supported pol- eventually supported policies that would extend uh, rights for uh, black Americans. Uh, and famously, Lincoln did meet with Douglas. I mean, Douglas is one of the, the great great individuals in our entire history. If, if he were alive today, he would have won the uh, uh, Nobel Prize for 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 literature. Should be for oratory, but I don't think there is one for oratory.
0: If uh, there were, he would writer. be a good recipient. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, it would have been perfect. And the the man had it was persuasive. He had great power. He was much more radical than Lincoln, much more. Lincoln if you uh, <laughs> I think Doug uh, Douglas underwent an evolution parallel to Lincoln's Douglas thought Lincoln was nothing Douglas's early comments about Lincoln and frequently through the war were extremely disparaging uh, as are many Americans I mean one of the things I point out repeatedly in this book was that Lincoln was pretty unpopular during the war in the north and again it, it, Suffering attacks from both left, right, and in between as being weak, indecisive. Uh, I'm not saying those are my views. I'm saying those were views of people of the time, and they have to be taken into account. Douglas was one of those. However, there was a meeting of the minds. Uh, Lincoln, I think, understood Douglas, and uh, he was never as radical as as Douglas, but but he understood that that. Uh, Douglas and he were real, essentially fighting for the same thing. They wanted the same thing, a, 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 an America with greater equality, although um, we can't say how Lincoln would have behaved during Reconstruction at all. Andrew Johnson, whom we disparage with good reason for wrecking Reconstruction, believed that he was uh, pursuing Lincoln's policies, by the way, often yeah. forgotten. Uh, Lincoln's policies of mercy. Uh, and forgiveness.
0: So So, it brings me to, uh, if I may, Fergus, to the last speech uh, that Lincoln gave from the White House balcony which uh, has often been characterized as uh, minimal with respect to emancipation and paternalistic even. But I think you point out that uh, it certainly gave the message to uh, John Wilkes Booth that Lincoln was indeed headed toward emancipation. uh,
1: Yes. Well, well, um, of course, emancipation already had, had uh, in the South, had taken place right. at that time. Yes, Lincoln, Lincoln understood, but the, the 13th Amendment had already been passed. Slavery was over, of January 1865.
0: But I mean, I bringing that into fruition, it was certainly recognized by Booth and others that that was clearly Lincoln's intention.
1: Absolutely, yes. It, it was, although what that would be like in the years after the war, nobody knew. Nobody knew. That history had not unfolded yet, and uh, I mean, I, I mean, as an historian, what, what interests me, one of the many things that interests me, is seeing the moment through the eyes of the people as they were living it, rather than just through the uh, clarity of hindsight, uh, and I do not think Lincoln would go down in history in quite the same way had he had to manage Reconstruction, Uh, He was a far more generous man than than Johnson. Lincoln had moved forward greatly on slavery and race. Uh, Johnson was a a hardcore racist. Uh, uh, And uh, I think Lincoln would have, but the problems would have been the same about enfranchising uh, Southern blacks, uh, whether or not there should be military rule in the South, Uh, whether or not to re-enfranchise confederates, ex-confederates, who uh, much too rapidly came back into the political system after the war. And I'm not so sure Lincoln uh, would have made all the decisions that we, 160 years later, would like him to have made. Nobody can say.
0: Again, we're talking to Fergus Bordewick and his new book is called Congress at War, how Republican reformers fought the Civil War, defied Lincoln, ended slavery, and Remade America got a lot of questions coming in here for you, Fergus. One, uh, let me start with Tom's, who says, "What was the legal argument against states leaving the union? They elected to join the union. Why couldn't they decide to leave?"
1: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, a great many people in 1861 and through 62 were saying precisely what Tom was saying. What's the legal argument for this? And uh, it is not absolutely clear. There were there were deep There there was a deep division in in ideas about what the country was. Uh, Were were these, uh, was it just a a collection of sovereign states, or was it uh, a a nation that had come together, of of, uh, states that had come together for all time, forever? Republicans, Lincoln, of course, uh, um, took the latter point of view, that that once uh, um, established as as a union, states could not leave it. Now look, underneath this debate is inescapably slavery. The war was about slavery. It wasn't about anything else ultimately. Uh, And the argument, the legal arguments about states' rights and state sovereignty were all organized around the protection of slavery. And that is traceable right back to the founding, to the 1780s, and it was debated in the first Congress, which I wrote a book about some years ago, uh, and so on. Which we uh, featured every, on Forum,
0: by the way, and is in our archives. I just want to give that plug.
1: Yeah, the book was called The First Congress. It's a good book. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Uh, uh, so these, these, these were, issues were debated that early, right from the beginning. And uh, there is nothing in the Constitution that says states can't secede or states can secede. Uh, there was a debate about it, but you have to look at it in context, not in the abstract. And in the context, it's about protecting slavery. Uh, One of the
0: fascinating portraits in your book, uh, I'll just say this, and I'm going to bring another caller on board here, is Louis Trezvant Wingfall, who was a major secessionist. He was a Texas senator elected to fill a vacancy uh, around 1859, I believe. But let me get Wanda on here, who's been waiting patiently. Wanda, join us. Good morning
1: good morning uh thank you um i want to i would love
0: the speaker to address the mankato war between uh the the uh, u.s government and the dakota uh in 1862
1: during the civil war and uh 303 natives were uh, 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 arrested or or you know uh, were arrested Lincoln commuted the sentence of 264
0: and hung 38 Dakota men. These uh, Dakotas, uh, the uprising was caused by hunger and hardship on the natives' part. And so I'd like the speaker to
1: address that because I don't see the heroism of Abraham Lincoln in this.
0: Wanda, thank you for that question. And can I go to you, no, Senator Fergus? I,
1: yeah. Okay, I, I can say a few things about that. Um, uh the, the, Wanda has described what happened pr- pretty accurately, so we'll recapitulate that. Um, uh, a couple of other facts, however, to add are, are the following. Yes, the, uh, 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 the Native people there uh, had been pushed to the wall, they'd been treated very poorly, uh, as it was so often the case, um, and, and they rebelled. A great number of settlers were killed, the largest number of settlers ever killed in any Indian war. Uh, it's just a fact. I mean, that's, that's not a partisan fact, it's just a fact. So it's part of the context here. Uh, yes, initially about 300 uh, uh, natives were um, sentenced to die. Lincoln commuted uh, uh, about 90% of the, of the sentences, okay? Those who were executed were ones who it was strongly felt at the time, based on trials, uh, not randomness, but uh, you know, trials were imperfect, that's true too, uh, were ones who had committed specific crimes, specific murders, and there were, there were, they were pretty ugly, frankly, too. Um, and uh, heroism, I mean, Lincoln was running a war, I mean, I mean I he did it wasn't as if he uh, uh you know personally was was running the uh response to the uh, uprising one way or the other so I don't think saying whether whether he he was or he wasn't heroic uh but in the context of the moment committing the sentences of 90% of those was actually very unpopular and he deserves credit for it um I mean those the men who were hanged weren't hanged randomly uh we might feel that in, cosmically uh, it was unjustified, but in the context of the time, it was certainly seen as as the moderate reaction. I, let's leave it
0: at that. And let me thank Wanda for the question and go to a couple more questions from listeners uh, that have come to us via email. Martha wants to know, could you guys please explain how the GOP and the Democrats managed to trade their physical and doctrinal positions so profoundly after the Civil War?
1: <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> Okay, big subject, big subject, short answer, uh, or as short as I can make it, I guess. Like after the Civil War, uh, the, the Republicans essentially dominated, controlled the federal government uh, with only very brief exceptions, uh, uh, right up to, uh, into the early 20th century. There were, there were a couple of exceptions, brief periods, uh, and became the party of power. They became the party of power, they became the party of Wall Street uh, uh, within, before the, 18, before the 1870s were out. Uh, the roots of that were in the war, began during wartime and continued. Uh, and increasingly the Republican Party represented the interests of big money, not only. Uh, bear in mind that yes, the parties have flipped their roles, But also the Republicans derived from the Whig Party. The Whig Party was always a pro-business party, uh, even before the war. Um, But I think the real watershed was the 1930s, frankly, it was Franklin Roosevelt. It was Franklin Roosevelt who who, uh, uh, transformed an extremely conservative Democratic Party into a largely progressive Democratic Party yes, uh, he had the millstone, the Democratic Party had the millstone of the so-called solid South. Uh, 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 the Dixiecrats. Its, Dixiecrats around its neck for decades and decades and decades. Uh, but nonetheless, the great shift the, it came, it came with Franklin Roosevelt.
0: There's a question from Delphine who says, how did economic inequality due to slavery affect the desire to end slavery?
1: Well, nobody thought about economic inequality in that respect, it wasn't an issue. I mean, we, we, that's uh, a vital, vital uh, issue today. And it has been in the United States uh, for, for quite some time. You know, we, we applied different words to it. We used to talk about the poor. Now we, our, our terminology focuses on inequality. Uh, but uh, in the 1860s, nobody, nobody uh, imagined that pure economic equality was uh, was either possible or for that matter, even desirable. However, progressives, and they were progressive, the term comes into use much later in the 20th century. But in terms of being meant small p with a progressive uh, mindset, you find them in the Civil War, Thaddeus Stevens, Ben Wade, and others. Uh, and in the Democratic Party for that matter, uh,
0: That's most associated with Woodrow Wilson, who again was a pretty stone-cold racist, actually.
1: Well, Wilson's another story. I mean, Wilson, you know, Wilson's typically thought of as being from New Jersey because he was uh, governor of New Jersey and dean of Princeton, president of Princeton University. He was actually a product of the deep, deep, deep South. He was raised in uh, Georgia and South Carolina and educated there during and after the Civil War. And he absorbed completely absorbed the ideology of the lost cause. And as many may know, uh, he he praised the uh, technically brilliant but politically appalling film, Birth of a Nation what she showed in the White House.
0: See what's great about talking about you is we can go right up to uh, the 30s and we can go right up to the present, but I've got one more question from a listener. We've got seconds left here and boy it's a big one again. But Daniel says, is there consensus among historians on Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus? Was he right under those circumstances or is it a mark on his record?
1: I think it depends on where you're coming from. I think uh, 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 those historians who may be on the today's right, right wing, uh, we'll see that as a blot on his on his uh, reputation uh, the vast majority of historians including myself So it's absolutely necessary absolutely necessary there was significant subversion in the north uh, uh, there there was massive draft resistance in some states uh, there were places where uh, federal recruitment officers in the north were shot um, uh, and there uh, uh, telegraph lines uh, torn down and so on and so on. Lincoln was dealing with significant subversion and habeas suspension of habeas corpus was a necessary tactic.
0: Well, I'm and, sorry we're going to have to leave it there because we've covered a pretty broad swath here and it's uh, always great to have you on. Fergus, thank you so much for joining us on this Hour of Forum. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Michael. And may I just say if uh, anyone listening uh, wants to find out more about the book or about my other books, uh, I have a website. It's just my name, FergusBordewick.com.
0: And that's spelled B-O-R-D-E-W-I-C-H, historian and author of Congress at War, the new book, How Republican Reformers Fought the Civil War, Defied Lincoln, Ended Slavery, and Remade America. Thank you for being a part of this morning's forum program. Mina Kim, another hour of Forum Up Ahead. And for all of us here, I say stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny.